0: The sermon text today is from Joel 2, 23 through 32. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil, And that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls.
1: I want to um, thank you. Appreciate your prayers for our family. The church has loved us <clears throat> very well. It, definitely challenging times, uh, and yet God's presence and power have been enough for us. Uh, the situation seems to <clears throat> not change, uh, but God does uh, bring a frame of reference and a strength of hope that upholds us in the midst of, of these times. So I know that there are other families even suffering with us, and appreciate your prayers for them as well. So thank you. Well, if you've been here, you know that we've started a series on uh, the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets, there's 12 in the Old Testament, and they're called Minor, not because they're lesser in importance, but they're just simply smaller in size. We looked at Hosea a couple weeks ago, and today we look at Joel. And and Joel is an interesting uh, book. Perhaps you haven't even read it. It's a very small book. It would only take you maybe 14 minutes to read from start to finish. But it's interesting because it speaks predominantly about the day of the Lord. In other words, that final day when all things are reconciled. And Joel is not just informing us about the day of the Lord, but he's actually preparing us for this day of the Lord. If you were to read it, You'll see the outline is, is kind of clear, much more than Hosea was. It's really in three movements. You see Joel approach the people and give them a warning about this day that comes. He's going to use a recent historical example in the life of Judah, that is the southern kingdom, and he is going to warn them using that historical tragedy about the day that comes. And then after he warns them, he then calls the people to repent to prepare for that day. And then after they presumably repent, as we'll see in verse 18 of chapter 2, after they repent, he then explains the blessings that God will pour forth on his people. So it's, it's a book like the other prophets that are marked by judgment, and the holiness of God, and yet the mercy of God. We're going to see the kindness of God as well. So we'll just move along that, and you're going to, particularly if you read it, I think you'll be amazed to find you know, these, indes- you know, these kind of indescribable things he tries to describe with words. And it's really, particularly the second half, it's a fascinating read. So I would encourage you to read it even today. So first, Joel is a prophet, and he's giving a warning. And you're going to see that. He calls for drunks to listen. He calls for priests to listen. He calls for infants to listen. He calls for leaders to listen. And he, and he uses, in the first chapter alone, probably a half a dozen imperatives or commands. Be alert. Get ready. Wail. Moan. Be ashamed. Be prepared. He, he just calls these people to a readiness for an awesome day that's coming. But what he does, instead of just speaking about the day of the Lord, he first speaks about something that happened in the recent past of Judah. And you see this in chapter 1, verses 2, following. He says, Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? It's a rhetorical question. In other words, something this cataclysmic. Have you seen it in your days? Have you seen it in your father's days? He then says, Tell it to your children and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. In other words, this is going to be multi-generational. What God has done here is going to be repeated for generations. And here's what happened. He says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It is stripped off the back, the bark, and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Now, some scholars think this might be a metaphor of like an invading army, this tragic event. I probably just read it as it is, which seems to be a plague of locusts. It's not unusual in the Middle East. Now, I want to make sure we don't see locusts very often, and so they aren't some kind of irritating household pest. A, A locust was about two to three inches long. It's built like an armored vehicle. It can plant 70,000 eggs in one square yard of soil. And, and, and just out of that, it can consume 600 feet and just clear vegetation. So when he says the land was laid waste, everything green was part of their diet. And, and, and not just did it prevent them from eating, it even prevented sacrifices for Being given, You see this in the 16th verse, in the first chapter, he says, the grain and drink offering were cut off from the house of the Lord. So you can just well imagine the devastating impact of this plague of locusts. In fact, he says in verse 12, that even our gladness dried up. Now, I don't want you just thinking this was a problem, an infestation problem. Uh, These first listeners would have understood this to be from the hand of God. God had warned Israel in Deuteronomy 28, verse 38. He says, if you don't walk according to my ways, the locusts will come and will eat your crops. And they recognized, too, the judgment upon Egypt. So they saw this as a judgment against the nation. Now, what, what Joel is doing is he's taking this judgment, and he's saying this is only a foreshadowing. This is a picture, it's a prophetic symbol of what will come on that day of the Lord. And and we find the day of the Lord now spoken about in chapter 2. So he uses in chapter 1 this historical event to explain the day of the Lord in chapter 2. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 2. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of dark clouds and thick darkness. Now, you feel the ominous, the weight of this thing. And as you continue reading in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, it's going to intensify. The language that he uses becomes more cosmic. It becomes more powerful. Let me read you a few things. He says their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw, they're shining. And then look at verse 11. He says, the Lord utters his voice <clears throat> before his army, his camp is exceedingly great. He who execute his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So so you see, just in these first chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, uh, Joel is simply giving everybody a warning. He's saying, listen, there is a day that is coming. Look backwards at these disasters that God has brought. These are foretastes of what is to come. So he's warning the people. Now the takeaway for us today is that disasters do function in that way. In fact, they function in two ways. That when we see disasters come, tragedies, trials that, that blow into our life, we are to see in them, as Joel's teaching us, uh, the nature of sin. In other words, if you just read the first two chapters of the Bible, you think God is for us. He wants us to be fruitful, to multiply. He wants us to flourish. If our lives are likened to a field of wheat, You can just see just the acres of wheat blowing in the breeze. He wants us to flourish and to be fruitful and to multiply. And what Joel is reminding us is that the nature of sin is devastating, like a plague of locusts upon a field of wheat. That's what sin seeks to do. And Joel is just reminding the people of God, don't play with fire. Uh, Sin actually works in an inverted way from God. God wants things to flourish and fruit to be born, and sin devolves and destroys. You see this in your own life, I think. I mean, when you let bitterness reign, when you blow forth with anger, when you move in lust, you know what it does to the relationships that we have, whether it's marriages or friendships. You see the separation take place. You see the harm brought. You see the fruitlessness, the joylessness, the discontentment we have. Take a sin like the sin of pornography. The sin of pornography, it devolves a woman, right? It takes a woman who is an image bearer, a co-heir of grace, and it turns into, turns her into an object, into a commodity. It turns her into someone to be abused, the man. The man is to be the protector, to be the provider, uh, to guard the garden. It turns him into an exploiter, an abuser. It takes these image bearers and makes them actors on a stage. So it's a warning Joel's giving us that the, that the disaster is God's showing us that when we walk in sin, the fruit will be destruction of joy, discontentment, and unhappiness in our life. It just erodes happiness. But not just that, God is gracious in that these disasters do wake us up to transcendent truth. In other words, we can easily live as if we're houses without skylights. We don't live, many of us, we live day after day after day just kind of living at the end of our noses. We we look at the things that we have and the joys that we have, the upcoming things that are, are coming into our life, but we don't think As transcendently, we don't think about our own mortality. We may not think about our own death and standing before God. And so we live very much in the success that we may have or the joys that we may have. But God uses these disasters to wake us up spiritually. Now, most of you, I think, are old enough to know this. You know, you get the the personal crises. You hear a cancer diagnosis. You hear a health crisis, a financial crisis. And what does it do? It sobers us up. It makes us recognize what life is really about. Or on a global level, right? A tsunami, a school shooting, the World Trade Center. All of a sudden, that success in business or that accomplishment at the office or that financial security, it just doesn't seem that important anymore. It it kind of shows us the shallowness of much of what our life can be consumed by. This is the mercy of God. So, So perhaps you're here today and you do have a tragedy or a struggle, what is God doing in this? What is God doing in your life? Is he clogging your way, perhaps, to wake you up to himself? He, he can do that. You know, he, he can use things in our life, gently reminding us of greater truths that we have ignored. I'm not saying God is doing this. I'm, I'm asking the question. You know, we ought to ask, when we're in struggle, in personal, relational conflict, Health crises. One question that can make the conversation vertical is to say, God, what are you doing here? There's an assumption that God is doing something here, and it's a a question worthy of asking. And I think that's what Joel's having us consider. He's saying, listen, I'm warning you, here's a historical event, this plague of locusts, it's a pointer to what day is to come. And so what do we do? But notice how he leaves us hanging on the edge in verse 11. In verse 11 in chapter 2, he says, Who can endure this day, this great and awesome day of the Lord? Who can endure it? The short answer for you, if you're wondering, is no one. And no one has the resources, no one has the wisdom, no one has the power to endure this dreaded, awesome day of the Lord. But what he does in the very next verse is he shows us the response that we are to make. And look with me at verses 12 through 17. I'll just read 12 and 13 and 14. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's a bounding and steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Do you see what he's doing? He is showing us and he's warning us there is a day of the Lord that is coming to all people, to all nations. But, but he immediately turns to repent. And he tells us two things in these verses, two things. He shows us how to repent and why. Let me, let me explain how we repent. you notice he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Okay, it was tradition that if you heard devastating news, you would tear your outer garment. And what that was to do is it was to show that my inside is being torn open over this devastating news I've just heard. And what he's saying is, rend your hearts, not your garments. In other words, these outward manifestations can quickly become counterfeited. They can become engineered. And so the people were really falsely repenting. They were repenting, but not genuine repentance. Let me explain what that might look like. It might look like, I really regret my sin because of how it has embarrassed me. Or I really regret that I've done these things because of the consequences that are now part of my life. I, I, really, I really regret these things because my life has now become much more difficult. Or perhaps you're in a situation, and I've heard this before, and I know you have. You know, Your marriage is, is just struggling. I've got to go to church. I've got to change my life. My parenting is falling apart. Maybe, maybe something that you're doing is bringing about Consequences to your, to your own personal life. i got to change. i got to change and i got to get back with God. That would not be a genuine repentance. It may ultimately lead to it, but it is not that. It's a, it's a coming to God with all of your heart. That's what Joel's saying. We hear this awesome day of the Lord and he says, God's saying, return to me with all of your heart. Rend your heart. In other words, uh, repentance, genuine repentance is marked by this. That when I see the repugnance of my sin, I feel a sorrow before God because it has drawn his presence from me. I've chosen subpar gods and I have ignored the greatest, kindest God. There's a sorrow, there's a a sadness that I've offended God. And repentance always involves a turning from that and a turning to God. Uh, it, it's often marked by confession to God and confession to others, restitution if that needs to be made. And, and do you notice in this 12 to 17, in chapter 2, all, it says all are called to repent. The elders are called to repent, he says. You know, uh, us religious people, uh, many times we have to consider repenting of our religion. You know, we're very, we're very comfortable in being spiritual beings. And yet, sometimes that's not repentance. He calls the infants to repent. He calls the bridegroom and the bride in her chamber to repent. That the whole world needs to repent before God. This is a call from Joel to the nations, all need to repent. But notice how he motivates repentance here. Look with me at verse 14, because it isn't, hey, you better watch out, because he's up there keeping just a record of your wrongs. Notice what he says here. He says, return to the Lord your God For he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Joel is quoting the very words of God that God spoke to Moses when Israel built the golden calf and God's calling them back to repent from their idolatry. Do you see? God is not thundering threats from heaven. He is using the graciousness of his character as like metal to a magnet to draw us back to him. This is the kindness of God. I I, I hope, as we looked at Hosea a couple weeks ago, I, I hope if you've had a stern view of God, I hope you see God differently today. I don't want to minimize the nature of sin or his holiness, but I do want you to see that he's far more gracious, he's far more slow to anger, he's far more abundant Abounding in loving kindness than anybody you know. He far surpasses them all. And and so when we get to the second part, he warns us in the first two chapters, then he calls us to repentance. And, And remember now, the disasters of our lives are meant to lead us to God. I'm not saying that God causes every disaster. I don't have the wisdom to discern, as perhaps some television preachers do, about this disaster was caused because of this sin. I don't know. And Jesus doesn't seem to answer it for us. There was a scene in Jesus' ministry, recorded in Luke chapter 13, where this tower in Jerusalem fell over and killed 18 people. And so his disciples are asking, so why? You know, what gives? Were they worse sinners because they were killed? That's the way our minds work. Our minds work, hey, really nail the bad people and, and go easy on the good people. And so if a tower fell over and it just killed 18 people and it looks like a random event, they must have been worse than the others and what jesus said to them was this he says he says are those 18 on whom the tower fell and killed do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in jerusalem jesus is asking his disciples And he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. God uses disasters, bridges collapsing, tsunamis. He uses these things to remind us that life is precarious and short and we must be reconciled to God. That among all problems you may have, this trumps them all. To make sure that you're reconciled to God. And I want you to ask yourself, and I, I want you to consider, don't presume that you have repented because you know religious things or you've been spiritual people. Have you mourned over your sin before God? Do you see God as glorious and worthy and that your sins are, are, are seen as odious to Him? I mean, don't just assume because you come to a church or that you know the things of God that you have actually repented that you've turned from your sin and turned to him. And remember now, it's the character of God that's drawing you. He says, return to me. If you're here and you just think, I could not go to God with what I've done, do you hear how he describes himself? He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and kindness. He's drawing you to himself. That's what fuels repentance, is the knowledge of the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God. That's what we found in Hosea. The first prophet shows us this unfathomable love of God that we cannot even get our minds around. Remember the picture that he gave us? You and I are pictured as whores, and we're on the block, and we're being sold into sexual slavery, and yet God, a glorious husband, comes and he buys us back to himself. That's that's what God has done for us. That's an Old Testament picture of the care of God. Let me, let me remind you of a New Testament picture. You have the parable of the prodigal son. You know the parable. The, the father, he's rich. The younger son wants his money early, basically saying to dad, hey, I want my inheritance now, which is implying I wish you were dead. And so he takes his money, he goes to another country, wine, women, and song. And while he had the money, he had friends. When he loses the money, he loses his friends. He ends up in the pit with the pigs, And and the text says he comes to his senses. Now, what does that mean? Well, what comes to his mind is, I want to go back to my father. I'd rather be a slave in my father's house. Why? It was the goodness of his father that drew him to come back. And so when he comes back, he rounds the corner. And who's there waiting? His father running Puts a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, and throws a party for him. This is the picture of God that I want us to have that, that draws us back in repentance. Don't think you have gone too far to repent and to turn to God and to seek his forgiveness. Particularly if you're not a Christian here and, and you've, you've had in your mind this idea that, no, 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 no I've I got to make some changes and then I'll go back to God. Banish that thought. Banish that thought. Go to God with all of your sin. He is abounding in loving kindness. This is how we become Christians. It's not that we, we go to a Christian church. We become a Christian when we recognize that, that through faith in Christ, I can go to God and have my sins forgiven and be reconciled to God and trust that Christ alone is sufficient to save me and bring me sinless to God. But, but if, you, if you are a Christian here, we still practice repentance. You still sin. But we, we practice repentance. You know, Thomas Watson was a, was a Puritan, um, and he writes so incredibly accessibly. He says that faith and repentance are the two wings by which we fly to heaven. We practice faith and repentance. When you sin and you fall, then you repent to God. He's faithful, He'll forgive you. And then you begin walking by faith and you sin and you repent and you faith and repent, faith and repent. Those are the two wings that take us to heaven. So you see here in the first two chapters, Joel has warned us of this judgment to come. You people have been warned. If you haven't thought about it in 30 days, you've been warned there is a day of the Lord and it will come. And the way to be prepared for that day is to repent. And then starting in 2.18 all the way to the end of the book, he just gives blessings to us on how He restores to the repentant all that they've lost. It's a beautiful picture of God. You see that Joel preached, and they must have repented, because look with me at 18, what does it say? It says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. He had pity on his people. So it seems that they repented. And so now, starting in verse 19, he begins to roll out four blessings that we receive, that they receive, Uh, for those who repent. The first thing is that he restores all things that were taken to us, particularly our relationship with God. You see this in verses 19 to 27 in chapter 2. But let me just read those last few verses. He says in 26 and 27, you shall eat plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never be put to shame. Do you see what he says? He restores what the locust takes away. It's true, the vats are filled with wine, the vats are filled with oil, grain fills the barns, But there's more. He says, you'll be satisfied because I'll take your shame away. You will not be put to shame. He says that twice. Now, let me take your mind back to Genesis. In chapter 2, if you remember, the husband and wife, Adam and Eve, they were naked and they were unashamed. Why? Because there is no sin. You see in chapter 3 that they sin and they begin to clothe themselves. Why? Because they are unashamed ashamed. And so this promise that we will realize and we will enjoy on the final day, on the day of the Lord, you will have no shame, those of you who have repented, that, that your sins will not follow you there, that they won't be screaming for attention. God will adopt you as a full son and daughter. That is a gift to you. You look back at your history, it would bring shame to you and it because we may, you may be embarrassed over that, but it's all taken away. He says they will not be put to shame. The second blessing you're going to find in verse 28 and 29, this is that he restores us by his spirit. Listen to what he says. He says, "...and it shall come to pass afterward that i will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions." Even on the male and female servants in those days I'll pour out my spirit. So what Joel is saying here is on that final day, all flesh will have a full outpouring of God's spirit. Now remember, in the Old Testament, the spirit of God would only come on select people at certain times. Kings would have it. Prophets might have it. Some of those that are perhaps building something in the the tabernacle. But it was not given to all people. Joel's promise is that all of us, men and women... So there's no gender distinction. Young and old, there's no age distinction. And even the slave and the non-slave, there's no social positional distinction. All will have the Spirit. Now, why do we need the Spirit? Well, when the Spirit comes upon us, we're going to know God in a way that we've never known Him. God's Spirit resides in the saint, and we begin to know God. We can love God. We can enjoy God. We can live for His glory. This is the promise that the people of Israel waited for. In fact, you hear a kind of echoed in Jeremiah 31 when he says this. He says, you will no longer need teachers. You won't need teachers anymore because you'll, own, you'll all know God and you'll all know God fully. Can you believe that day? When, you, when your mind is going to expand To truly understand God, that is the day of the Lord. You will know him fully. The third blessing is that he's going to restore justice to the nations. You see this in chapter 3, from verses 1 all the way to 16. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, or in verse 2, he says, I'll gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. Look at 12. Let the nations stir themselves up. Let them come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. Verse 14, multitudes, multitude in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw. They're shining. You hear that again? The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. Do You see what he's doing here? He's bringing all the nations to bear. He's bringing them all to bear into this valley of Jehoshaphat, this valley where God will judge. And and he's going to reconcile with them. He is going to bring about justice. Now think about this. It's in the valley of decision. This isn't a valley where people go and finally decide, should we believe in God or not? Now this is a valley where he will render his decision. He will give his verdict. He will bring about judgment on all the people who have opposed him and opposed his people. Now, if you're not a Christian here, I don't want you to leave thinking this makes God look cruel. I I think you and I know well enough that God can be loving and bring justice. I mean, do you not see that as a good parent? A good parent who loves his child would not allow injustice to continue in the life of the child. If you think about the untold suffering of this world, you think about the unregistered, the unreconciled, all the suffering across all the years among all the people in the various countries where they have never received justice for the abuse that they've had to take from some landlord, some Feudal Lord, some king, some tyrant, some bully. And it's never been justified. It's never been reconciled. It's never been brought to justice. This day it will be. We need this day. Because this day is going to, re- is going to reveal God to be absolutely faithful and just and holy. And he will bring justice upon all those who have opposed him and opposed his people. And brought about wickedness. It is a day to dread. Now, for the Christian here, you don't need to fear this day, but we do need, we do need to consider the God of this day. Because we've passed out of that judgment. But that is the holy God that He is. And, and look at the fourth blessing. You just see it at the very end of chapter 3, 17 to twenty-one. I'll just read a couple of verses from there. He says, He says on that day, and, and this is the, the blessing is that he will refresh us with his presence. Notice what he says there in 18. He says in that day, the mountains will drip sweet wine, the hills flow with milk. Your mind is to go back to Eden. Your mind is to go back to the beauty of what God has created and it will be restored. It says a fountain will come forth from the house of the Lord for the Lord dwells with Zion. The Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. What Joel is promising is you're going to be with God. That on that day, we will dwell again with God. You think back to Genesis 2. They walked with God in the cool of the day. Can you imagine? Just, just ponder that thought. To be in the very presence of Almighty God, the creator of all things. Beautiful, wonderful. And then they were removed because of sin. And the whole Bible is a litany of this is what sin produces. But God is yet going to redeem and draw us back to his own presence. And so you think of Revelation 21. That I will again dwell with my people. And there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the presence. That's the promise of God. So you see these four blessings that were restored to being sons and daughters of God, that we have, were renewed by the Spirit, that, that He is going to bring justice to the nations, and that we're going to be back in the presence of God. These are the blessings that will come to all people who have repented at the end of all things Now, For you, if you're a Christian here, though, I just want to take one minute and remind you of these truths. You have already experienced these things. They're already yours. You have already had a foretaste of them. Think about it for just a minute. The first blessing that you have been made, you've been restored to being in fellowship with God as a son or daughter, you've already experienced that. Uh, Christ has died for your sins. You now bear no shame. Remember how we said that, My people will not be put to shame. You are not put to shame. For the Christian who has rested his faith or her faith in Christ, he has paid for your sins. He said, it's finished. When you sin now and there is a degree of shame, what do you do? You confess your sins. He promises, he says in 1 John, that he's faithful and just and he'll what? cleanse you from all sins, removing the shame. We now have been fully adopted. Paul said this very thing in Galatians. He says that in the fullness of time, God sent a son born under the law, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law and give them what? Full rights as sons and daughters. Do you feel that way? That is, this is a theological truth that the one who is found in Christ is fully a son, fully a daughter. There is no shame that awaits you because Christ has borne it for you. But the second blessing about being renewed by the Spirit, we know that has come. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, with the coming of the Spirit, he begins to preach. And what does he do? He preaches that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God to save. And what happens? People are convicted of sin. They rend their hearts. They said, we're cut to the heart. What should we do? And he says, what? Repent and be baptized. It's the same language from Joel. And it says that they were added to their number. They called upon the name of the Lord, and they were saved. The same Spirit has now been given to us. We don't have the Spirit in the measure that we will when we know God in fullness, but we're given the Spirit now to know God. And you can see God has equipped the church with the Spirit because the message that Peter preached is still going out to the ends of the world. But you see, the third blessing, the third blessing is that God's going to bring justice, right? Sin's going to be punished. All things are going to be reconciled. You say, well, how have we seen that in part? Well, you see that in the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ has been judged. He bore the cross for us. He was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bore God's judgment. You don't need to really wonder, is God really going to judge him in the end? Oh, yes, he will judge the nations in the end because he's already judged the Son. We stand now forgiven, pass through judgment into life because he's brought judgment. God will bring judgment, and he has. And the last blessing is that, is that we'll enjoy God in fullness in his presence, but we do now impart. You know, when, when Jesus came, his name was Emmanuel, God with us. When John the Apostle saw him, he says that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only I mean, this is, this is Jesus saying, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The Christian now experiences God. We are now partakers of his divine nature. We have God with us now. We will have him in fullness then, but we have him now. So do you, you realize what I'm saying is this day of the Lord with all these promises, you and I are smelling that apple pie right now. It's coming. We have a foretaste of it now. We're the ones that are longing, looking, striving for this day. This isn't a day to forget about. It's not a day to fear. It's a day to long for. It's a day to think about. So let's take a moment now, and I I pray that you would use these words, particularly this call for repentance and have you repent it in a genuine way. Or if you're not a Christian, perhaps you've never even considered these things. Uh, Let's take a few moments now and consider them in light of of this great and awesome day of the Lord that stands before us. Then I'll pray for us in a moment.